This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is My Tale to Tell and I'm Stephanie Fruin. In 2019, I gathered around a very small table various groups of strangers who wanted to start writing their memoirs, or at least writing some of their personal stories for their families to one day read. They were generous enough to allow me to record them reading their stories and to share them on air with listeners like you. Given the current situation of COVID-19, I can't see me sitting around a table with workshop attendees for quite some time, so I thought I would conduct my workshop over the airways. The world might be in lockdown, but our stories are not. For many, the idea of writing a memoir seems arrogant, and the response I mostly get from people when I ask them if they'd consider writing down their life stories is, who would be interested in reading about my life? I've done nothing interesting, nothing important. I'm no celebrity or sports hero. But I think they're wrong. I believe every life is interesting, and committing that life to paper or some digital format to be forever remembered has a part to play in conserving our history for generations to come. Now more than ever, recording our history is incredibly important. We must make available for our children and their children to come information about our lives, lifestyles, health and habits, for who knows what clues lie in these stories as to what is to come in the future. So over this strange and uncertain COVID-19 time, I'm going to take you through the steps to get you writing your memoir. Do not be daunted by this project. I will make it easy and enjoyable. So far on your memoir writing journey, you've written about your name and a turning point in your life. For part three, I want you to cast your mind back to a family holiday, and I'll talk more about this soon. But for now, I want to introduce you to the importance of language and style to storytelling. What do I mean by this? Well, storytelling can be done in a number of ways. A written memoir along the lines of what you're doing now is one. Others include an oral history, simply talking your story to someone else. Or you might write a letter, an email, keep a diary. Songwriting or poetry all tell us stories and all are different in their style. So how does this relate to the topic of a family holiday? I don't know about you, but for me when I was a child, or even more so as an adult, when I went on a holiday, I often wrote someone a postcard or a letter with details of where I was, what I was doing to occupy my time, what I thought of the place, people, accommodation, and how I felt about it. Often this letter was to a close friend or family member, usually my parents, and depending on who I was writing to, my choice of language and style of writing would change. To a friend it was casual, used colloquialisms or expletives, but to my parents I'd never use bad language and would soften my approach, so to speak. Writing a postcard is different again. When you look at the size of a postcard, it's obvious that what you're writing is going to be limited, thereby limiting your word count and also how you describe things. You need to be very particular about word choice. You want to say a lot with not much, and you become far pickier about what you consider is important information to reveal. Both the letter and the postcard tell a story, but the language and style are very, very different. Now, back to the topic, 
a family holiday. Maybe you've never had a family holiday, or maybe you never had one as a child, but you do have with your own children. Or are you one of those families that plan your year around the holiday adventure? Were your holidays fraught with tension, arguing siblings or parents? Or do you have fond memories of relaxed nights and days, stress-free walks or adventures? Whatever the holiday, is there one that stands out as particularly memorable for good or bad reasons? Why does it stick in your mind? Does thinking about it fill you with joy or maybe a deep sense of regret, sadness or gloom? Holidays can be strange and wonderful, happy and sad, and the reasons are vast. But like all life experiences, a holiday will ultimately influence your thinking about people, place and time. You'll probably have more than one to choose from, but one might just stand out more than the others. There are three steps to this topic. The first is to draw on a piece of paper or in a writing book, anywhere at all, an outline of a postcard, bearing in mind its size. Mark out where a postage stamp and an address would be. Then decide who you're going to write this postcard to, with details about the family holiday you've chosen to write about. Get a good clear picture of them in, in your mind, of the recipient. It can be anyone at all, as long as you know them well enough to be sending them a postcard. It could be someone who has died, but if they were here still, you would send them one. Write the postcard, then look at it and notice the language choices and the style of writing you've used. The second part to this is to write a letter about your holiday. Again, choose a recipient. It doesn't matter who, it could be the same person you've written the postcard to. But again, when you've finished it, look at the language and the style that you've used this time. Both the postcard and the letter tell a story about your holiday, but they are very different. And finally, write your story. You may of course be now sick of writing the same story over and over, and that's okay. It's entirely up to you. But what you'll notice when you write your story this time is that you're thinking about detail and language. Just the action of thinking about your language and style of writing is different because up to this point you've possibly just written with not too much thought about what words you've used or how you used them. When you've done your story, compare it to the other two that you've recently done, the one about your name and the turning point in your life. Is there a difference between these three stories? Are you happier with one more than the other? What I want you to do is to start to recognise the importance of language and how it influences the tone and the feel of a piece. This will change all the time, depending on who you are writing to, and even your own mood at the time, and so too will the style of writing change. So enjoy the challenges of writing about your family holiday, as a postcard, a letter, and a story for memoir. Remember, your story shouldn't be too long no more than 750 to 1,000 words. By giving yourself a word limit, you'll stick to the story. You'll get rid of the waffle. Once you've written your story, then read it out loud. That is the best way to pick up mistakes. And then you edit it. There may be some of you, when you're done, you'd like to send it to me to have a read, to offer you some feedback. And by all means, email it to me. My email address is mytaletotellnz at gmail.com 
Coming up are examples of stories with the theme A Family Holiday, written by attendees of one of my workshops. Some are as letters and some are as stories. So have a listen and you'll see that every story is different. There's no right or wrong way to do this. I'll have a different topic for you next time. So until then, get writing. I am Heather and this is my tale to tell. Account of a holiday in the form of a letter. Dear Coral, I have been included in a holiday with Eleanor and Jacob. What a surprise. The reason Jacob's mother, Helena, who speaks no English, has been brought out from Poland and as a part of her stay is being treated to a trip to Queenstown and everything related to that stay, including its side trips, Milford Sound, dinners and the like. Because my son-in-law will be focusing on his mother and they will be speaking Polish, I have been included so that his wife and my daughter has someone she can talk to. At first I was delighted to have found an app that translates into Polish, into English. But Jacob soon forbade me to use it. Turn it off, he said. I would soon work out why. Ordinarily I would not meekly obey when being bossed like that, but I felt in an inferior position being a guest for a specific purpose. Helena gabbled in Polish and would often point at me and laugh. I would have to be really stupid to assume she was being complimentary. The scenery was amazing even to this Kiwi. Jacob took hundreds of photos of his mother while she posed. At Milford Sound, Eleanor and I had been sent on ahead while Jacob and Helena dealt with parking the car. It was quite a walk to the terminal building. As soon as we arrived, Eleanor picked up the tickets for the boat cruise. The building was packed with hordes of tourists, all intent on one or other of the cruises. We couldn't see Jacob or Helena in the throng, and the minutes ticked by. Eventually, we went outside to look at the boat. They were not there either. Eleanor was desperately worried and asked me to sit on a bench while she went back inside to search for them. I was anxious the boat would leave and that would be that. It was already filled with passengers. Eventually, Eleanor came back, very upset. But we boarded the boat. Helena and Jacob did not appear. After the interesting and wind-blown voyage where the wind whipped out a hearing aid of mine into the sea, we returned and discovered that Jacob and Helena had been standing outside the terminal building waiting for us to appear, and they just stayed there until the cruise boat sailed away. They could never have seen us from where they were standing because they were at the back end of the terminal or the front, depending on your point of view. They were not on the jetty side where the boats were. I was stunned at this. They never got to see the ocean or the inlet that was Milford Sound. I can't say that this was the best holiday I have ever had, but it was certainly the most interesting. Another day for the best holiday, but something about this made me think this was rather quaint the way it ended up.
My name is Ruby and this is my tale to tell. Dear Leon, guess where I am right now? I know you would be very jealous, but I've spent the last five days in the wilderness of Finland. Right now, I'm 150 kilometers north of Arctic Circle and my whole world is black and white because as far as I can see, there is snow around me. I've never been in snow before. Living in the world of color, I forget how much color there is and how overwhelming it is for me. Here, there are just shades of gray. And for the first time, I feel that I can open myself up to my environment and let it wash over me. It's peak of the winter here, so the temperature is mostly minus 10 or minus 15 degrees. There is 80 centimeter deep snow, and you can't tell where the road ends and where it begins. We're in a beautiful log cabin in what feels like the middle of nowhere. There's fire inside which keeps us warm, and from the warmth of my cabin, I can just look out the window and gaze into the nothingness. It's trance-like. It's magical. Yesterday, I made angels in the snow for the first time. Frank and Nina have been an amazing hosts and are showing me around everything. Today morning, Nina made a lantern from ice. She filled the bucket with water and left it outside for a few minutes. Very soon, the water froze, but the ice was still thin in the middle. So she emptied it from the middle and turned it upside down. Voila, there was our ice lantern. Such a simple thing, yet so much beauty. We also ran snowmobiles, but I found it so hard to ride it because I could never tell where the road was. At the end of it, I just had to ask Frank to ride, and I sat at the back. Whoa, he's a fast driver. I don't think I've ever had this much fun in my life, though. Of course, due to it being winter, we don't see much sun, and I kind of missed it on my fourth day. But today the sun shone for a few seconds on the ice. The yellow light on the white snow was like gold glittered across the white sand. I was mesmerized. I don't want to leave this world. I want to stay here and keep enjoying my complete assimilation of the environment. I don't have to protect myself from the color overload. How beautiful. Do you think it's strange? I mean, who gets overwhelmed with color? But you remember when we, are, when we were at the restaurant a few weeks ago and I became really uncomfortable with the cacophony of the bold and bright colors. Maybe it is a thing. Maybe one day I will live in a place with shades of black and white. One can dream, eh? Yours, Ruby. Tired of living life in black and white There's so much in between My name is Karen and this is my tale to tell Dear Petra I want to tell you how much I enjoyed our holiday in Melbourne this April Your dad, brothers and I had several days in Melbourne City before you joined us from Wellington Being a foodie family I think one of the highlights was all the meals we enjoyed in wonderful Melbourne restaurants of course, Dad always chooses Asian restaurants, so the Malaysian restaurant on the corner near our hotel was the first one we tried. Spending the day with Diana and Michael that Sunday in Melbourne was a day to remember. Lunch at Brunetti, 
then a walk to see the street art in Hosier and ACDC Lanes, and dinner at Roger Federer's favourite restaurant, Chin Chin, in Flinders Lane that night. But the dinner I enjoyed the most was at the cosy waiter's restaurant upstairs, where we had to queue on the stairs, waiting to get in. We were all hungry, and when the food arrived, we were so happy to share our pasta dishes and try what others had ordered. Hope Toon Tea Rooms and the St Kilda Ferris Wheel and Luna Park were fun too. I loved the banter when we picked up our rental car. Who was going to sit where? Who was going to be banished to sit in the boot because your bums were too big to all fit across the back seat? And how Dad had probably booked a mini to save a few dollars, I roll. Staying with Caroline and Vito in Gippsland at Easter was really special. Nights spent in Vito's man shed, playing pool while watching music videos and drinking wine. How we shrieked with laughter when somebody sunk the black. That man shed was so awesome, full of things Vito has collected, and every night you'd see something you hadn't noticed previously. We decided we needed one at home. Port Ferry was beautiful. We walked to the lighthouse, then along the jetty admiring all the boats moored there, and had a posh fish and chip lunch in the sun. The boutiques on the main street were pretty tempting too. Our drive down the Great Ocean Road, stopping at all the lookout points, bored you and your brother's silly. We're not stopping again, are we? Well, we're not getting out. This is so boring. But Dad and I insisted we wanted to see every one of them. We might never come this way again, kids. Are you sure you don't want to come and see this one? More eye-rolling. Remember how we were all looking out for that fabulous ice cream shop Diana and Michael recommended we stop at on the drive to Lawn and spotting that koala up a tree while we ate them? Catching up with Diana and Michael again in Lawn and walking up to Erskine Falls with them was fun on Anzac Day. Being woken by cockatoos perching on our balcony in Lawn and watching the sunrise over the water and an early morning walk out to the pier while you kids slept in were highlights for Dad and I. I so enjoyed that holiday, all five of us spending precious time together before you flew back to Wellington and we flew home to Christchurch. I can't wait till the end of the year when your uni exams are over and the boys have finished school so we can all go on holiday again, this time to Petra, where we have promised to take you since you were small. Love and big hugs from Mum. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Come away with me and I will. I'm Isabel, and this is my tale to tell. Family holiday. Robert and I have never been typical Kiwi holiday makers, lying on the beach, getting sun and wind burnt and covered in sand. We're more active, like to explore our environment. Neither have been dedicated horse trackers or skiers. We've loved tramping in the bush, exploring new places. We have slept in tents, but not if we can help it. When Fran first joined our family at the age of 13, she craved love and acceptance and wasn't able to receive a compliment or any sign of affection unless the initiative came from her. Perhaps an indication of what life had been like for her. She cared nothing for her appearance, and even though she had a head of beautiful curly brown hair and a slim athletic figure, an attractive bubbly personality. Outdoor activities were her forte. 
Jonathan, our five-year-old, was used to children coming and going and so gave Fran little attention. She would sometimes tease him, which he disliked, and call him unacceptable names. We needed to prohibit her from bringing that kind of culture into our home. Consequently, she thought we were favouring Jonathan. Meeting their individual needs was a challenge. As a family, we planned our first holiday, booked a motel in Rotorua, which happened to have a swimming pool. Fran was in her element. She was a water baby, just loved the water. No sooner had we arrived than Fran was in the pool. Robert and I were settling us all into the motel when Jonathan, in his togs and dripping with water, ran into the motel, grabbed my hand and said, Mum, do you want to see me sit on the bottom of the pool or lie on the bottom of the pool? I was stunned. Jonathan didn't like water. I hadn't expected him to venture near the pool. When he was a preschooler, I'd take him to the beach to play. Jonathan was happy playing in the sand. He had a sandpit at home, but not at all keen on the sea, even with friends. When I introduced him to paddling in the shadows, he didn't like all the tiny fish and bits of seaweed in the water. So I was surprised and disappointed. He can't be a real Kiwi without loving the sea and learning to swim. So I was speechless when Jonathan asked me to watch him in the pool, which I did with trepidation. He dived into the water, sat on the bottom, came up after a few seconds and said, watch me lie on the bottom, which he did. Full of admiration, I said, how on earth did you do that? Fran taught me, he said. She was grinning from the other side of the pool. Well done, Fran. I am, I'm impressed. At least now the two of them had a connection through the beginnings of an older sister and younger brother relationship. Fran went on to protect him from bullies at school, and when the school photo time came around, Fran insisted she wanted to be in Jonathan's school photo, to which Jonathan had no objection. I have known family holidays to be hazardous to one's health, for expectations can be very individual and disappointments can come too readily. Fran, now a wife and mother, has had fun holidays with her three on the beach, fishing and having barbecues. Jonathan, on the other hand, has some difficulty with his partner and her family because traditionally her partner's family always go on holiday together to the same place and sit on the beach. It has driven him spare. In the end, he would go for walks exploring by himself. Now that Jonathan and Leanne have their own children, they may start their own family holiday tradition, but somehow I doubt it. Sorry, Jonathan, but how are we to know you'd choose a partner with traditional tastes in family holidays? Uh, this is a little poem about uh, the foster child. If I could change to be like you, will you accept and love me? 
how will I know? If I pretend to be like you, will you accept and love me? How will I know? If I stay just as I am, will you turn away? Will you accept and love me? How will I know? If I am really bad, sabotage my place with you, will you send me back? Or will I then know if you can love me? My name is Lynette and this is my tale to tell. Dear Catherine, we are just back from six weeks in Europe. After the earthquakes I said to Colin, we are off to Europe for a big trip as I always wanted to go. As you know, I usually have to organise everything so I was thrilled when Catherine and Emma decided to come as they could organise the trip and us. Having been on day bus trips in Australia, I knew I didn't want to go on a bus tour. We flew to Singapore for two nights for a whirlwind stopover with Catherine organising an activity for every waking minute. On to London for a day tour around the city, waiting for people to get on and off the bus. And then I knew we had made the right decision not to go on a tour. In Ireland we hired a car and Emma drove around Ireland. We visited her cousin Sarah and stayed for two nights. Then through Spain and on to Barcelona, my favourite city. Not enough days here. I had to decide whether to stay in the city or go with the girls and Colin to Montserrat Monastery. I went to Montserrat, which was amazing, and I'm pleased I did, as it was a long way out, and probably I wouldn't go out there if I went back. The only place in France we went was a small town on the coast called Villa Franc Samur. It was lovely sitting out the front of the hotel having cocktails, although not with Colin complaining about the price of the drinks, which is probably why they had complimentary chips and nibbles, but you only do these things once. The Cinque Terre in Italy was amazing, as was Venice, although Venice was very crowded. In Florence we did a couple of different things. We went on a walking tour with the theme of chocolate, which was great, and the next day we went on a day trip round the wineries, Only 10 people on the trip, so that was nice. Then to Rome and the Vatican City, which was just amazing. Onwards to Croatia, where we spent a week, first at Dubrovnik, staying in an apartment in the Old Town, and then to the islands of Korkula and Havar. Back to the mainland, where we hired a car and travelled inland to the National Park and the Provence Lakes, which was so green and lush. It was such a contrast to the coast, and boy, the temperature was different from the coast, been at such a high altitude. When we were driving round the coast, I made the comment that you wouldn't need a lawnmower here as everything was so dry and brown. Amazing boardwalks round the lakes. On to Athens and we went to two islands, Paros and Santorini. Unfortunately, Paros had a really cold wind. It's not usually like that at this time of year, the locals told us, so we hired a car and went to the sheltered side of the island. It was so good to spend six weeks with Catherine and Emma and they worry about where and when we must be somewhere. Think we have been on every mode of transport available while we were away 
and that's what we wanted instead of staring out a bus window. It will be so good to catch up when you are over next. Hopefully see you in the new year. Love, Lynette. Four seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and worlds below My name is Julie and this is my tale to tell. Our childhood holiday. When you live on a farm, life tends to be controlled by the seasons and the needs of the farming practices and the animals you have. I tell you that because I lived on a farm for my childhood and never ever had a holiday with my father. He was always left at home to keep things running smoothly. He never complained, it's just the way it was. I remember returning from one of our holidays to hear that a load of hay on the truck had caught fire as Dad drove along our shingle road. It had gone up in flames very quickly, he said. It was big news to return home to. Our childhood holidays were generally in the summer and we would travel from our farm in Green Park, so from the country into town and across town to our nana and papa's holiday home in Keppel Place near Brighton, Christchurch. Yes, holidays at the seaside. A little history for you. The name of New Brighton was apparently done on the spur-of-the-moment decision by a William Fee, an early settler of the area. When a Mr Guy's Britain, the Waste Lands Commissioner, visited the area in December 1860, he was recognised and Fee chalked New Brighton on a wooden plank supposedly in reference to his fellow settler Stephen Brooker, who'd come from New Brighton in England, which is up by Liverpool, as opposed to the popular seaside holiday destination in the south-east coast of England. With the green patent holiday house being perfectly located, only one street away from Marine Parade, the sand dunes and the beach, we were so lucky to be able to walk to the beach every day. We used to love jumping in the waves and building sandcastles. The water was generally warm and if the wind was blowing we stayed in the water as protection against the cold wind. The holiday house had three bedrooms and a dark wooden panelled lounge plus a sunny room on the side with a couple of extra beds. I'm thinking that really is more like a home but for us it was my grandparents holiday house. With our togs on and towels we wrapped around us and wearing gentles on our feet, we would all make our way down to the sand dunes and over onto the beach. We were confident swimming, even though this was very different to swimming in the Green Park School pool. The surf life-saving patrol always moved the flags on the beach to ensure when we were swimming we were away from any holes or rips. Mum had trained as well, as we always swam between the flags. The only downside to a visit to the beach was the sand. When you jump through the waves, it gets into places it really shouldn't. Later, when you remove your togs, you would end up with a pile of that dreaded sand that had lodged itself inside your bathing suit. At the beach, we would lie on our towels to dry off, and no sooner had we laid down and we were scrabbling back over the sand dunes. We had a mission. The dairy was waiting to take our pocket money as we bought ice creams and lolly mixtures. We were happy. This is what summer holidays should be. We had holidays with mum and the four of us kids. 
Then there were holidays when Nana and Papa bravely took on the responsibility of having more than four kids for up to a week without any parents. Then on other occasions, we'd have big family gatherings with a combined lunch with aunties and uncles and all the cousins. Yes, a huge family gathering. My sister has different memories because she was six years older and our cousins, Jeanette and Lillette, were her favoured grandchildren. Well, not really. It was just they were older, so they tended to have holidays where they were there without the rest of us. She said Papa used to pay them 20 cents each to go and buy the newspaper on a daily basis. He only wanted one newspaper, but he paid them all 20 cents. So they went to the end of the street, across the road, into the newsagent in the mall. Obviously, with everyone being paid, it was an expensive newspaper that Papa got on their return. During the 1960s, New Brighton was Christchurch's only shopping centre open on a Saturday. So for anybody working five days a week in the city, New Brighton was the place to be at the weekend. During the 60s and 70s, New Brighton was vibrant and packed with shoppers, a cafe across from the beach with an arcade full of machines was also filled with teenagers. Unfortunately, many shops have shut and the vibrancy is long gone. It's not like it used to be. Far from it. I asked my sister about food when we were on holiday and she said Nana was in charge of the kitchen and they set the table with a yellow dinner set or a tealy blue dinner set that had been purchased from Woolworths. My auntie still brings that dinner set out at family gatherings today. I'm amazed at my sister's recall because she told me that Dad had got rolls of newsprint from the press. Then by cutting up the roll and using a stapler, he created newsprint booklets for colouring in and drawing. Card games and other board games were played, and I know once we played charades, which was lots of fun. The garden was very sandy, and I think we must have brought back heaps of it with us, and the sand got in the house as well. There were shelves, the riches of the beach visits, that were creatively placed amongst the succulents and spiky ice plants. These holidays were the best holidays. And there was only good expectations when holidaying with Nana and Papa at the holiday house. It was a relaxed time had by all. My name is Robert, and this is my tale to tell. A family holiday. One family holiday from my past has always stuck in my memory more than any other. I was 14 at the time, and it was 1963 in India where my parents were working at the time. We were due to leave India at the end of the year for good, and my parents decided that we should take this last opportunity to visit Kashmir, a place where we had never visited before. Kashmir is located in the far north of India and is really part of the Himalayas, the massive, powerful range of mountains stretching right across the top of the Indian subcontinent. Our bus drove through steep hills, across deep valleys with raging rivers, through spectacular scenery, eventually arriving at Srinagar state capital set high in the mountains. 
Srinagar is famous for its setting beside the beautiful Dal Lake with hundreds of ornate houseboats, all with grand names such as Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle, etc., moored just offshore against an island. We went on lovely trips in shikaras, that's a small boats fitted with a canopy and comfortable lounging cushions to lie on, and were paddled slowly along the various waterways through vast beds of flowering water lilies. Calm, quiet and peaceful, it was so beautiful. After a few days there, I went, along with a few of our friends that had joined us on holiday, way up into the mountains. This was amazing. The air was much thinner as we were at such a high altitude, and the first time I had seen snow. Wow! We stayed up there for about a week, enjoying horse rides and a bit of climbing, but nothing prepared me for what would greet me when we returned to Srinagar. A day or so after I had left, Dad began to feel unwell and quickly lapsed into unconsciousness. Mum, being a nurse, kept calm and called for a taxi shikara to come over from the shore to her. The man came and helped her lift Dad into the wee boat and across to the shore. There she hailed a rickshaw and told the driver to take her to the hospital. Off they went, Mum not knowing where they were going or to which hospital. Fortunately, the driver knew what to do and took them to a private hospital run by the Basel Mission, a Swiss-based organisation that had excellent facilities. The help was immediate and terrific. They diagnosed Dad as having meningitis and pumped him full of penicillin to kill the infection. After a few days, he regained consciousness but remained in hospital for some time. So sadly, after all that, they saw little of Kashmir and I'm so thankful that they remained in Srinagar and didn't come with the rest of us up into the mountains, as I fear he would have died there. So my memories of that holiday are the wonder and beauty of Kashmir, but tempered by how fortunate we were that Dad miraculously survived. My name is Louise and this is The Family Holiday. 1975, a cold Christchurch winter. We fly to Fiji. It is dark, nighttime dark in the Pacific. We are in the airport waiting beside our luggage trolley. My winter handmade dress is itching and prickling madly against my skin in the heat of the evening. I complain and my mum lets me change into a lightweight cotton smocked dress she has made. I think I put sandals on too. The dress has no sleeves, just ties on the shoulders. I feel so free and comfortable in the heat in this green dress. It's a yellow and gold threaded pattern dress. A relief from my body and the warm air soothes my skin. The air smells different in Fiji. The warm, moist air. It is humid. It is wetter than the dry South Island of New Zealand that we have just left. The air smells of plants, of sea salt, of the blue Pacific Ocean. Warm air makes different sounds. It has a different voice, like a quiet roar, like the air particles are moving at a different speed because they are warm. People look different to me in Fiji. I am blonde. I am small. I am five. At night we go out to a village. At night people dance with fire. They walk on hot embers and they are strong. 
They wear woven skirts and they are chanting, they are singing and they dance to a powerful rhythm. They sing unknown tunes, unknown tunes to us. These are the sounds of the night that I have not heard before. In the daytime, we go to an island. The plants are wet and the plants are very green. There is an outside toilet and there are little green frogs jumping all over the wet, moist toilet floor. I try to catch them. The delight of catching little green frogs in the fierce, altered-smelling, varied textured world to that of my own. Well, it seems like fun. But my mum says, no, no, leave the frogs. And we eat green oranges. We fly home to Midwinter Christchurch in 1975. It is cold, and the blue family mini takes us home, and there are no seatbelts in the back. The winter night is cold. We can see our breath on the air. I have my coat on, and I am glad of the winter dress that is no longer prickly. The red bricks of our house are a backdrop for the moths that flutter in and out of, and around the yellow light outside that lights the way in for us to walk up the patio steps. The moths are somehow reassuring that we are home, we are safe, and that we will be warm. Fast forward to July 2012. This trip is me, my mum and my daughters. My mum generously takes us to Fiji for a holiday. It's a really lovely trip, after all the wobbly madness of the quakes. My mum felt like getting out of Christchurch. It was a much-needed break, and I don't need my arm twisted. My mum and I booked the flights. My husband is happy to stay in New Zealand. He struggles in the heat in a way that you wouldn't believe until you see it. He struggles on a hot day in Christchurch, let alone on an island in the Pacific. In the middle of winter, he walks around the house in shorts and a t-shirt. Genetically, my husband is from the west coast of Ireland, and in the summer, we are all reminded that Daddy is not made for the sun, that Daddy is made for cold temperatures. He is at his happiest in cool climates. And he is happy for a week of peace and quiet looking after the cat while we are away. We leave Christchurch. Our flight is late getting into Auckland, and we have to run the walk from the domestic to international terminal. When we arrive in the departure lounge, we're the only ones wearing wool and coats, and we look like we have come from somewhere cold. After all, it is winter, but by Auckland dress codes, we look Antarctic. We get to Fiji and to our accommodation. We are staying in the end department of a tiny complex. The hotel is right on the waterfront, so we can hear the rumble of the ocean. Our accommodation is small and low-key, but it is comfortable and easy to live in. It's so low-key that outside our apartment is a sugar train track. A small train jammed packed with freshly cut sugar cane comes right past our door day and night, and a bit more in the night, like 3am middle of the night. But we don't mind holidays that are unusual and not dripping in tourist attractions. As beautiful as Fiji is on the tourist brochures, I think that Fiji is a hard place to holiday in. It's easy to see that life here is hard, and as a tourist, I always felt that we were being viewed with a certain amount of scrutiny and suspicion. This makes me feel a little nervous as I don't like the sense that we are apparently moneyed when it's obvious that the locals are not. In Fiji, the air rests with an uncertain edge of trouble. The locals and the tourists often walk along the sugarcane track to go to the other beaches. We went for walks along this train track a few times. There is a marina at the end of one of these walks, a marina full of hundreds of really expensive boats. To get to this marina, we walked past small creeks of water that lead down to the sea. These creeks are full of rubbish, nappies, plastic bottles, a broken chair. The juxtaposition of lifestyles is striking, and I wonder where all the owners and people with a nice lifestyle are. 
When we are walking along the train track, I do feel nervous as the train track narrows in places. While we walk, I live in constant fear of what would happen should we meet the sugar train head on. The open sugar train carriages carry the sugared cane sideways across the carriages and there is nowhere safely to stand at the side of the track. At these narrow places along the track, the only place to jump into is the watery rubbish. At the end of a day's work, the sugar cane workers often walk the same track to their home, carrying their machetes with the ease that women carry handbags. One day we hitched our way to the bus stop to go to Suva. From the bus, we saw local men opening coconuts with their machetes for waiting children. And the bus into Suva has no windows, just like I remember in 1975. But the bus back home to our hotel has raging Indian dance music and freezing cold air conditioning. Both the loudness of the music and the Antarctic cold air conditioning temperatures are unbearable. And again, at night, I was able to watch the night dancing, the flying fire and the hot embers glow as the dancers' feet walk over them. My children watch this new language of sound, of chanting, of body movements. The noise of the evening air, full of fierce flames, smoke, strong, dark male bodies, woven textures. It's always a powerful and mesmerising image. When I asked my girls what they liked and remembered most about this holiday, they replied, the butterfly landing on one of them, the flower necklaces, the wharf, getting their hair braided, the swinging hammock and the pool, and the cool blue water of the pool that had bar seats. Please, Mum, can we swim all day, they would ask. And they would. Grandma and I would watch from the lounge pool seats. They were happy, and so were we. When we returned to the cool winter of the South Island, we felt like we had had a good break. We felt a bit more restored in ourselves. Goodbye, warm Pacific air, goodbye, sugar train, and goodbye to the apartment that had a dodgy bed leg that made us laugh hysterically when the bed tipped over one night. We arrive home safely in daylight. This time there might not be any moths to greet us, but Daddy and Tane the cat are happy to see us safely home. They say that these are not the best of times. They're the only times I've ever known. My name is Judy, and this is my tale to tell. Family holiday. I can only remember one family holiday we took when I was a child. When given this topic, I thought that was a bit odd and quizzed my dad about it, thinking I must have forgotten other trips. But no, that was indeed the only family holiday we went on, though I do remember Sunday drives to various places around Canterbury. I must have been around five at the time of the trip. Mum had purchased a tent from a work colleague and we went camping in Kaikoura. Not in a camping ground, mind you. I guess it was the equivalent of freedom camping back then. It certainly wasn't the civilised and comparatively luxurious glamping that some people enjoy nowadays. No toilets, showers or kitchens for us, and only a little round charcoal barbecue to cook on. We ended up only staying one night. That was plenty long enough for me, and I suspect for the rest of my family too. To be honest, I only have vague memories of being really bored and hating it, with nothing much to do. Back then, I was terribly shy and many years younger than my older brother and sister and the spoilt goody-good child to boot. I often felt unwelcome in their company and my parents were usually doing their own thing too. We did go on something that they called a nature walk at some stage. I remember being scared by the huge stick insects I was introduced to. Maybe they weren't huge, 
but as a kid I'd learned to emulate my mother's dislike of spiders and all things creepy-crawly, and I didn't like these strange creatures at all. We spent one uncomfortable night in the tent. The ground was hard and it was cold, and we really weren't as prepared as we might have been. As it turned out, we didn't need to suffer another night in the tent, as the next day a huge storm rolled in, really quickly. It was amazing how it went from beautiful sunshine to blustering storm in just half an hour. We shouldn't have been surprised, as Dad recalled the locals saying a bad storm was coming, but clearly the warning was not sufficiently heeded. Our tent was ripped up from its ties before being slammed back on the middle pole, resulting in a gaping hole. Dad hurried to retrieve some set nets he'd borrowed from friends to try and catch crayfish. Nothing was caught, but he became very cold and wet in the process of retrieving them. While Dad was occupied with that, my brother had become involved in a human chain where they joined hands together to rescue some people whose boat had capsized while fishing when the storm arrived so suddenly. It sounds like it must have been quite dangerous at the time for everyone involved with the high winds and by this time big waves. On their return to the campsite, things were hurriedly packed up while my sister and I sheltered in the car. We wasted no time heading for home, any thoughts of continuing our holiday abandoned. My brother was buzzing from the excitement of the rescue, while Mum and Dad were disappointed and sullen at how things had gone. We never tried camping again, though much to Mum and Dad's delight, despite now being ripped, the tent was soon on-sold for a profit of $100. A lot of money in those days. That was the only family holiday we ever went on. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I'm Isabel, and this is my tale to tell. A family holiday. My dad was what my mum called a stick in the mud because he didn't like being out of his routine. He'd go to work at 8 till 5, Monday to Friday. Mum always made his cheese and pickle sandwiches for his lunch. He would tend his vegetable garden on Saturday and then cycle or walk up to his allotment to meet up with his fellow gardeners. Sunday, read the newspapers and rest. And for dinner, we had roast on Sunday, cold meat on Monday, mince and veg pie on Tuesday, and so on. And each day of the week, Dad would always fit in half a pint of beer at the pub up the road. Mum, on the other hand, was a sensitive, perfectionist-type person who always dreamed of living happily ever after, but got stuck with home-me husband who thought that doing anything out of his routine was ridiculous, and two young children who tied her to a damp and dingy cottage. How she would have loved a holiday. <coughs> Once, I remember, Mum must have persuaded Dad, with persistent nagging, to go on holiday. That meant a few days at Brighton. Ah, yes, Brighton a prestigious resort in the Edwardian and Victorian era, the closest to the sea for those in the home counties. So off we went. I'm not sure how we got there, but I think it must have been by coach. 
I remember when I first caught sight of the pale blue sea stretching to the horizon. It took my breath away. It was as if it went on and on into infinity. We checked into a boarding house, not right on the seafront where we were. Thelma and I got changed into our beachwear. Mum and Dad didn't need to change. We hired two deck chairs for Mum and Dad. Mum was in a modest sundress and sun hat. Dad in his suit with a tie and with his trousers rolled up to his bony knees and, of course, a knotted clean handkerchief to protect his receding hairline from the sun. My sister and I wore cotton fabric swimsuits that had a ruched square over our chests attached to knickerbocker bottoms held up by straps that went over our shoulders and crossed and fastened at the back. These were made by Mum. Two years previously, she had knitted us similar swimwear, and the one time that we got wet, they stretched so far to the ground that they made us look embarrassing. Brighton, of course, is devoid of sand, and we didn't spend much time playing on the beach, so we splashed around in the shallows, jumping over small breakers. Once, we ventured out beyond the gentle break of the waves to the calm of the cool green mill pond beyond. Suddenly, I noticed that my sister wasn't in sight. Instinctively, I reached under the water, grabbed her swimsuit and hauled her up. She seemed dazed but didn't splutter and we just accepted the incident as being normal for the seaside. When we weren't loitering on the stony beach... We would go in search of some activity, mainly food. Brighton Foreshore has a typical seaside promenade overlooked by splendid four-storey grey stone houses snuggled up side by side, now mainly hotels and guest houses. We would walk along the promenade to the pier where we could buy hot fish and chips sprinkled with salt and vinegar wrapped up in newspaper. We usually found some shade under a tree with a patch of grass to sit on. All the time I was aware of the quiet whoosh of the sea, relaxing yet luring me back. The pier was very long and full of family strolling, buying candy floss and the famous Brighton Rock with the word Brighton all the way through the stick. There were sun hats and cheap souvenirs that Mum said we didn't need and cheeky postcards that had comic characters saying things that I didn't find funny. We were allowed one ice cream a day and a stick of rock to take home. And going home came sooner than we expected. On reflection, Dad did seem to be coping with the separation from his routine, if not exactly enjoying the break. Mum, on the other hand, seemed to be relaxed and appreciating the change of air and the lack of routine. I remember us standing outside the pub and my parents speaking in low voices. Apparently, my recidivist half-a-pint dad 
couldn't hold out any longer and disappeared into the pub for a quick one. That's how we came to return home early. Mum packed up the next morning and that was the end of our holiday in Brighton. I wonder who it was who sabotaged that holiday. My mum or my dad? My Tale to Tell is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories.